Hi, I'm Ada Yee. I'm Erica Senor. And I'm Julia Turan. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience brought to you by Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Each week we invite a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week our guest is Rob Malenka, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences here at Stanford. Thanks for joining us today, Rob. It's my pleasure. So, Rob, we have here your favorite cocktail. Can you tell us what it is and why it's your favorite? Um, it's a mojito. I watched you make it, and as I said, you did a wonderful job. Thank you. And, you know, I like a lot of different drinks. I'm a, actually a pretty big wine drinker, usually Bordeaux's. Mm -hmm. But I like mojitos because it's a nice mixture of sort of sweetness and tartness, mm -hmm. I think because of the, the mint um, and the lime. And I really like the tropics. I like tropical vacations. I like islands like Jamaica and Hawaii and Tahiti. And when I drink it, it all, because it's a rum-based drink, it always reminds me of the Caribbean and those sorts of experiences. Have you been to those islands a lot? I've been to, I've been to Hawaii a, a lot, uh -huh. maybe 20 times. I've been oh, to wow. Jamaica oh. maybe three or four times. I've been to the Tahitian Islands maybe two or three times. So, What do you if, do when you go to Hawaii? Um, well, when my kids were little, did the typical family stuff, you uh -huh. know, go to the beach, body surf, go hiking, bike riding, and a lot of, a lot of snorkeling. Um, mm -hmm. So just the traditional stuff. And now that I'm a little older and my sons are young adults... I still do the same thing, except now I um, <laughs> now I do it. I do it. I'm fortunate enough to occasionally have meetings in Hawaii, so I usually rent a house with my friends, um, mm -hmm. who are usually professors from around the country, mm -hmm. and we hang out and we party. We drink and we eat and we hike and we snorkel and we have a good time. Other than yourself, who's who's the biggest party animal scientist? Oh, now you're. <laughs> um, I'm see. I'm giving that very serious thought, um, and it's it matters which generation of scientists you're talking about. Actually, How about your generation? Uh, well, let me go through the different generations. Okay. So, the generation that is a generation or two older than me mm -hmm. um, is one of the best partiers. Is a, a guy I did my postdoc with, Roger Nickel or Roger Nicole at UCSF. Uh -huh. And Roger, I have almost never seen leave a party early. He's always <laughs> one of the last ones to leave. Um, so Roger, yeah, Roger is very good. In my generation, in his youth, Mark Baer, who's a professor at MIT, yeah. was was pretty good. He could keep up. Um, <laughs> he's gotten a little sedate in, uh, in his, in his yeah. late middle age, his old age. Oh, that sounds like a throwdown. We're going to send this um, I am happy to challenge anybody at the Pickhower Center in MIT uh, about these kinds of issues, about who has the most fun and who's able to stay up the latest and uh -huh. listen to music, go dancing, have fun. I, I'm pretty good at that. So we don't usually ask our guests this on the show, but I think uh, since you're a special guest, you're a very successful scientist. So we're, uh, we wanted to know a little bit about how you got to this place. So where did you grow up? What was your family like? That sort of thing. So I, I grew up in a suburb of Boston called Belmont, which mm -hmm. is really right next to Cambridge and Lexington and Arlington. I have an older brother who's a cardiologist at Dartmouth and my parents my father was a physics professor at a large private university called Northeastern University, mm -hmm. and he did his Ph.D. in theoretical particle physics in the 50s, actually. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then my parents sort of never left the Boston area. My mother, even in the early 60s, when I was, I was very, very young, um, was working full-time as a social worker during the Dukakis administration. She was fairly high up in his administration until she irritated a lot of people and she got asked to step aside. And when she was working for the Dukakis administration, she basically was in charge of you know maybe a quarter of the state of Massachusetts. And then she became the head of welfare social services for the city of Cambridge. Both my parents are, they're fun, they're very active. I mean, they're very old now, but they're very gregarious. They like to interact and they're very social, but they're very intense. Mm -hmm. So when I was growing up, the message I got was education and doing well in school was very important. Mm -hmm. And I learned at an early age very early age, probably by the time I was in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, I figured out as long as I basically got straight A's, they left me alone and I could do anything else I wanted. Yeah. Some troublemaking? Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in the in high school in the, you know, seven, in the early 70s, basically, uh-huh. is when I was in high school. And that was an era <laughs> where there were a lot of drugs, there was a lot of partying, and it was just acceptable. People didn't wear seat belts. There were no bicycle helmets. Um, seriously, I mean, I used to ride my bike from Belmont into Boston, no helmet through the streets of Cambridge and Boston without a care in the world. Mm-hmm. And that kind of somewhat stupid, carefree attitude also was paralleled in my sort of work hard, play hard ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you still live by that ethic today? Um, I try to. It's uh-huh. a, you know, I, more or less, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to work less and play more oh, really? as uh, I get a little more senior in my profession. Uh-huh. But I, yeah, I've always been kind of a work hard, play hard. I've always been very disciplined. I went to Harvard as an undergrad, and even mm-hmm. back then, it was a serious party time, but I was always very disciplined. I always got all my work done every single day, and then I partied for three, four, five hours every single night wow. with my friends. <laughs> every um, night, wow. Um, pretty much, pretty much every night of my college existence except the nights before exams. Wow. I would actually study. I was disciplined. Uh-huh. Or sometimes even two nights before my exams <laughs> wow. if it was a hard course. So did your father encourage your interest in science, or how did you first discover that? Um, that's a good question. And, you know, one would think, you know, with a physicist as a father, he might, my parents might have done that, and I w- you know, all my parents' friends were, n- not all of them, but a lot of them were professors. They were physicists mm-hmm. and chemists and mathematicians, and the truth is, I just thought they were geeks. They couldn't, know, <laughs> they couldn't throw a football very well. They couldn't throw a baseball very well, on average. Um, and surprisingly, they, they did not emphasize science. They just emphasized scholastic success. Uh-huh. I think they would have been fine if I was... And English, you know, really good at writing and, uh, you know, interested in poetry and English. Or, and, and the truth was, both in high school and my first two years at Harvard, I was a lost soul. I had no intellectual passion. I had no idea what I wanted to do. You know, I think I had a talent for math and biology and science. And I liked some aspects of it, but I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do when mm-hmm. I was in my early college career. So when you were a kid, though, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, God, I, I was a, a typical kid stuff. I, 
I was a real jock. I was, I, I played, I was captain of my soccer team, played on the varsity basketball team, captain of my tennis team. Wow. So back then I was a jock and a party animal. So there was, I mean, you know, <laughs> I had long hair like everybody did. Uh-huh. I mean, it was the end of the hippie era. I uh-huh. mean, but it was, you know, everybody had long hair. Everybody was sort of partying and not worrying about the future very much. When yeah. I was little, I was thinking, you know, I wanted to be a Boston Celtic. I wanted to play <laughs> professional basketball. Then when I got into tennis, I wanted to be, this was a little older, like Bjorn Borg. Uh-huh. But I, was, I wasn't that stupid. So by the time I was in high school, I was a good athlete. But I realized, you know, probably not good enough to be a professional <laughs> athlete. Don't have the musical talent to be a rock and roll star. Mm-hmm. My eyesight is too bad to be an astronaut. <laughs> um, and these were things I all, con- you know, I considered when I when I was a little kid, when yeah. I was in, you know, eight, nine, ten, eleven years old. And I, I have vivid memories. I mean, this is now, you know, in the mid to late sixties. I had this imagination that by the time I was really old, like twenty-five years old <laughs> or thirty that people would be playing basketball with jet packs on their back and flying around and that sports would be, you know, and they would be, that did not actually happen. You know, the the sports world has not changed that much. So I figured out by the time I was in high school, I was not going to be an athlete, a rock and roll star or an artist or something that really seemed like fun. I was going to have to go to college and figure out how to make a living. And like I said, I was a lost soul my freshman and sophomore year. So I then mean, what happened in your junior year? I'm really glad you asked that. So <laughs> what happened is, so I, I arrive at Harvard, and I was one of the townies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up in Belmont. I used to have Harvard students buy me beer. I used to come into Harvard Square and ask the Harvard students who were walking up and down the street, you know, will you buy me and my friends a six-pack or whatever? So I was a townie. Yeah. But uh, I was very comfortable in Cambridge and Harvard Square because I literally spent, growing up in high school, I spent a lot of time there. So I arrived at Harvard. took me a little while to figure out how to do the academic thing. Mm -hmm. Um, First semester, got my first B's and C's in my entire career, and I sort of said, oops, (laughs) I think I might have to study a little bit harder than I did in high school. The balance of of play hard was a little... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I was goofing (laughs) off a little bit too much. Uh I made some incredibly good friends my first two years who are still my very best friends. They're like my brothers and family. Several of them live in the Bay Area, so I still see them. But the challenge I faced was I was surrounded in general by people who my impression of them was they were driven, they were ambitious, they were accomplished, and they knew exactly where they wanted to go in life. Mm You know, I, I had a roommate who I didn't get along with who knew he wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. You know, there were people like Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer in my class who oh, founded wow. Microsoft. They were, I mean, I, I knew people who knew them. I didn't know uh-huh. them personally. But, you know, they were already entrepreneurial. I knew people who knew they wanted to be a senator or knew they wanted to head a corporation someday. And I literally had no idea. I was thinking, uh, should I go to law school? Should I go to business school? So... I did have an interest in biology, and what happened to me is my end of my sophomore year in college, I took a course in what was then called physiological psychology, Mm -hmm. which today we would call behavioral neuroscience. And I took that because I had always, from my partying days in junior high and high school, I had always had an interest you know, in why do we feel the way we do, what makes us happy, what makes us sad, 
it was always questions like that. It wasn't mm -hmm. about perception. How do we see a visual stimulus or hear an auditory stimulus? It was always about mood. Uh -huh. um, I was fascinated by drugs and how they worked on the brain and why when I did this drug, it made me feel this way and that. So I just took this class kind of, well, it sounded kind of interesting. And it was the first academic class that I, I loved. It was, I had no, you have to remember, this is 1975. Mm -hmm. um, there were some neuroscience courses at Harvard, um, some famous ones actually, but it was still, you know, relatively early days in the neuroscience community. And it, for me, it was eye-opening that you could actually study some of these questions, uh -huh. you know, and I learned about some of the classic experiments about stimulating certain areas of the hypothalamus and stimulating feeding and neural basis of sexual behavior. And I, I, uh, I did, and this is important. Um, so I did my term paper on sleep, uh -huh. neural mechanisms underlying sleep control, functions of sleep. And it was fascinating. But before I took this course, I had arranged to take a year off from college. Mm -hmm. What happened is I grew up in Boston. I was going to what I viewed as my local college. Yeah. No big deal. Go to Harvard. It's just the local Whatever. school. Yeah, no, <laughs> seriously, that was my attitude. And for some reason, most of my friends at Harvard, not all of them, but maybe five out of my six, six out of my seven best male friends were all from California, and most of them were from the Bay Area. Uh -huh. And I never lived any place but Boston. And all I heard after we got friendly was how much Boston sucked <laughs> and how they couldn't wait to get back to California and wait to get to the Bay Area uh -huh. and just get out of the cold, miserable winters and the nasty people in Boston and the sour climate and the sour attitudes. Uh -huh. So I decided to take a year off that my parents were dead set against, and it uh -huh. was Arguably one of the best decisions of my life. So my parents, I just said, no, I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. And I drove cross country with one of my friends who's now an applied physicist at Slack here at Stanford, at the Stanford <laughs> oh. Linear Accelerator. He was from Chicago, John Fox. He actually teaches in the applied physics department here. So we drove across the country, had a blast. Nice. We basically drove across the country, took about three, three and a half weeks. We were camping out the whole way, uh, listening scared. to the Grateful <laughs> Dead. You know, uh. we were deadheads. You know, this is 75. And our third friend, um, who became one of my college roommates, was from Marin. He was mm -hmm. from the Bay Area. And he had gone to Redwood High in Larkspur. And he was taking a year off. So we had arranged to all take a year off together. And he, his parents helped us rent an apartment in the marina of San Francisco. Wow. So we were three 20-year-old <laughs> we um, guys. We wow. couldn't drink. The drinking age was 21, uh -huh. living in a two-bedroom apartment. And we arrive in San Francisco. We set up our apartment um, in the marina. And other than the lack of any social interaction because we were too young to be in the marina. That's, you know, we were a little young to be in that kind of singles kind of area. It was heaven for me as a kid from Boston. It was like, it was beautiful. You know, San Francisco was not that expensive back in 75. It wasn't that crowded. And we all know how spectacularly beautiful San Francisco is. The weather was yeah. spectacular. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it was like, Wow. You can live a life where every day you get to see the Golden Gate Bridge and Alcatraz and see the water. But I was motivated. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I 
had started to get interested in the possibility of neuroscience in medical school. So I spent about two or three months intensely trying to find a job in San uh-huh. Francisco. And like nobody would hire me. In retrospect, I understand because, you know, I was a kid from Harvard taking a year off. They knew I wasn't going to stick around. I mean, I should have fibbed. I should have said, yes, I want to be a clerk in your store for the rest of my life. And um, so I couldn't get a job. And I was burning through the money I had saved. Now, this is important. This is all true. The summer before I took this year off, I was living in my parents' house in Belmont. And I got a job as a mailman. So it turns out that during the summer, letter carriers, as they're officially called, Uh United Postal Service workers who deliver the mail, take weeks off. They need replacements to deliver the mail. I was a substitute mailman for several months, which was a blast. Yeah. Except you had to be at work at 6 in the morning. Uh So it was a 6 to 2.30 day. And I I had saved up quite a bit of money that summer. They actually, Uh relatively speaking, I got paid well for a 20-year-old kid. And I wanted to use that money to travel in Europe the following summer. But I was burning through it, and I didn't want to ask my parents for money. Mm-hmm. And I was going, oh, God, what am I going to do? I mean, I'm going to, you know, maybe I have to t- try to get a job at McDonald's or something. You know, i got to make some money. And out of the blue, I get a letter from the state of Massachusetts saying I am eligible for unemployment compensation um, <laughs> because I had been laid off, I wasn't fired, and I had not gone back to school. So make a long story short, I filled out the forms, and for the next six or eight months, I got checks from the state of Massachusetts, <laughs> um, which was just enough to live on. It wasn't uh-huh. enough to save any money, but I wasn't going through my savings. So that gave me some freedom. Yeah. So I was collecting unemployment, and I was interested in getting exposure to some aspect of neuroscience research. My roommate, who was from Marin, his father was a professor of internal medicine at the San Francisco VA hospital. I talked to him. I told him about, yeah, I have some interest in the brain and stuff. He hooked me up with a a professor of psychiatry at UCSF who worked at the San Francisco VA, a guy named Erwin Bob Feinberg, who's now probably about 92 years old. Mm -hmm. And this guy, Bob Feinberg, was a clinical sleep researcher. He did EEG recordings of people while they slept and did actually all sorts of interesting analyses of changes in sleep patterns correlated with aging, correlated with exercise. Mm -hmm. So he let me volunteer in his lab. I learned how to score EEGs. I read lots of papers. And I I owe him a lot, but he took me under his wing. Mm -hmm. For some reason, he liked me. So I would hang out with him for hours at a time and just talk about stuff related to the brain and sleep and drugs. And then at the same time, even though I had just finished my sophomore year in college, I started going to the seminars that the psychiatry residents at UCSF were going to at the San Francisco VA. Uh So I started going to weekly psychopharmacology seminars, weekly seminars on what was then known about psychiatric illness. So that experience, and then the rest of the time I played tennis two or three times a week, Went sailing because my friend's father owned a boat. Went to a lot of really awesome friends. I have good friends. I went to a lot of rock and roll concerts. A lot. Uh I went to um, the Greek Theater at Berkeley. A lot. I went to this place called the Fillmore in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so the impact this experience had on my life was: first, I saw what this guy Feinberg was doing, and it was 
I was not very naive. I just said, no, that looks pretty good. Uh-huh. He just gets to sit around and think about interesting things, and it doesn't really look like he works that hard. <laughs> you know, and this was be- I didn't know about publishing papers. I didn't know uh. about writing grants. I didn't know about the competitive aspect of science. Yeah. It was just, that looks like fun. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe I should try forging a career about that. And I went back to Harvard now with a focus. Mm-hmm. I was really interested in brain and behavior and neuroscience. But I was, I find it very funny because as you guys know, I collaborate, some of my work is in collaboration with Tom Sudhoff. And Erica, you're a graduate student with Tom. And as you may know, he just won the Nobel Prize for his (laughs) pioneering work on molecular mechanisms of neurotransmitter release. So, Uh you know, Tom is a pretty hardcore molecular neurobiologist. And I'm doing stuff with him, even though I'm obviously not a molecular neurobiologist. But back at Harvard, I was scared of any hard science like that. I took courses in ethology and animal behavior. I took a course on a whole course on schizophrenia and I really got into it. I said this is fun. This is interesting. So I took a lot of neuro courses sort of in this is again in 76 77. So mm-hmm. we didn't know nearly as much back then. Yeah. And I got really interested in psychiatry, more as mental illness is really interesting, and maybe it's a window into what's going on with the brain. I mean, it's just very funny because I am a modestly successful neuroscientist now, modestly, and sure. <laughs> and um, I was scared. There was a famous course called Bio 25, which was sort of the hardcore cellular neurobiology course taught yeah. by a guy named John Dowling, who's very famous for his work in the retina. And I was scared to take it. I thought that was too hard. (laughs) And then most importantly, my senior year at Harvard, I became really good friends with a guy who had just finished his residency in psychiatry at Harvard. And he became an instructor at Harvard Medical School. I mean, which is basically like, you know, slave labor. He was was a soft money clinician. And I figured out that I could organize a course that he taught and I could get credit from hanging out with him. So my senior year in college, I organized two courses, which were held in my dorm room with my <laughs> friends, which were fun. I mean, so the first yeah. semester, we, we read Jung and discussed Jung. Uh-huh. That was one of my courses, my first semester. Second semester, I organized a course on psychopharmacology. I basically said, let's learn about how drugs act on the brain, what was known then. Mm-hmm. And at that point, at some point during you know, my junior year, I decided going to medical school would keep my options open. That's uh-huh. how I approached it. I, was very, I wasn't even sure I wanted to be a scientist. And I just figured being a doctor, if I don't like doing research or being a scientist, I could become a doctor, and that seems like a worthwhile thing to do. And, you know, I'll help people, and that seems like a good thing to do. And it's biology, and I kind of like biology. But the most important decision I made is if I'm going to go to med school, I want it to be in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, I wanted to get back here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd been in Boston for two years. And then during my junior year, I'd also continued to do some sleep research with a guy at Harvard named Alan Hobson, who in his day was a very well-known sleep researcher. Mm-hmm. So how in medical school did you get interested in doing research and how did you find your focus in research on memory and addiction? That's a very good question. <laughs> so I got to Stanford Medical School in 1978. Mm-hmm. I was rooming with this guy, Chuck Weitz, who ended up becoming a professor of neurobiology. Another friend of mine who's 
now a surgeon in San Francisco. So we start at med school. It took me about a month or two months of medical school to realize this, I really don't like this. Uh -huh. Sitting in lecture all day is boring. Studying gross anatomy is boring. Uh -huh. um, studying medical microbiology, you know, bacteria and viruses is boring. So uniformly, my gang at medical school that I became friendly with, who all became pretty successful, we all stopped going to lecture. We just said, you know, they, they give us lecture notes. We don't really have to go to lecture anymore. So that freed up a lot of time. So I started reading and thinking about what I wanted to do, played a lot of tennis, um, continued to party in a very serious way. But I spent an enormous time Back then, in 1978, there was something called a library. And in the library, <laughs> they had journals. These, those are paper volumes uh -huh. um, because this is before the Internet. Is this like a Kindle? Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like oh, a Kindle. <laughs> so I would, I would go to the library, and I would spend, in, at Lane Library, um, uh -huh. I would spend hours perusing neuroscience journals, mm -hmm. just flipping through. And back then... I mean, this is before Neuron. This, is, this may have even been before J-Neuroscience. The major journals in neuroscience back then were Brain Research, mm -hmm. Journal of Physiology, Journal of Neurophysiology. And I would just go and look through the table of contents. And then there were these very famous volumes, sort of review volumes, put together by something called the Neurosciences Study Program, mm -hmm. which was first based at MIT and then moved to Rockefeller under the direction of Jerry Edelman. And I spent three months basically not going to medical school and just reading. Being a graduate student. Being a graduate <laughs> student and reading all sorts of stuff yeah. about neuroscience. And I actually, in retrospect, realized for somebody who really had no experience back then, I thought, relatively speaking, fairly deeply about what approach do I want to take to the nervous system? Mm -hmm. What kind of research might I want to do if I decide to do research? Because I had never done bench research before, yeah. ever. I had done human EEG research, sleep research. And I decided that electrophysiology and actually recording the activity of nerve cells was the way to understand the nervous system. You know, that, what what and, led you and to that conclusion? It was kind of just obvious, you know, that uh -huh. neurons have spiking activity. They communicate via synaptic transmission. You know, this is before, really, molecular neurobiology existed. I mm -hmm. wasn't interested in development. Uh -huh. I just wasn't. I wasn't, even though it's a fascinating question, I wasn't interested in how the brain and the nervous system develops. It just felt right. It was sort of intuitive. Mm -hmm. And so then, and I, I was so naive, but actually, during the winter quarter, I mean, I was doing this pretty rapidly, you know, as you guys know, I don't take many students, especially medical students. Yeah. They come to my office, and if they want to work with me, they have to fight. They have to really <laughs> convince me that it's, I should take them. But I was a naive first-year medical student. I started looking up the papers of faculty here at Stanford and basically calling them up and saying, would you meet with me? I'm considering volunteering in your lab. Uh -huh. I want to talk to you about that possibility. So I interviewed with Carla Schatz back then, who was wow. an assistant. It was her <laughs> second year. She was an assistant professor here. I interviewed with David Prince. Mm -hmm. And I actually thought very seriously about working in a lab of people who were doing single unit recording in awake behaving primates. There was a famous neuropsychologist back then named Carl Prebrum, mm -hmm. who 
gotten some trouble here over the years. So I was thinking of doing single unit recording in awake behaving animals, but I started, it just felt too slow to me, mm-hmm. a little too indirect. I felt like, of course, I'm going to find neurons whose activity correlates with this behavior. What is that really going to tell me about yeah. how it works? So I sort of got and started thinking, you know, I want to do cellular electrophysiology. I want to look at how nerve cells communicate with each other. But I realized I had no experience. Yeah. So I didn't want to go to a lab of a senior PI. I wanted to find some young person mm-hmm. who was just starting their lab, who would be in the lab with me and really train me with hands-on. And I was very fortunate to find a guy. I was 23 years old. He was 28 years old. Oh, wow. He was an assistant professor in neurology named Jeff Kosis, who's now a professor at Yale in neurology. And he worked closely. He was basically brought on board by a guy named Steve Waxman, who at the time was the chief of neurology at the Palo Alto VA and then became the chair of neurology at Yale for 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. And the spring quarter of my first year in medical school, I went, I found Jeff I thought their work on axonal conduction properties were kind of interesting. And, I ju- and he was just starting his lab. It was just him. He had nobody. I said, can I work with you just as a uh-huh. volunteer? I have no idea whether I'm going to stay more than two or three months. Let me just hang out with you and see what you're doing. So I started working in the lab part-time. It was just fun. He was a blast to work with. We were making in vivo recordings from awake, unanesthetized rabbits. Yeah. We were doing – I mean, we were doing – fun stuff. It was just me and him in the lab. And it was just fun. It gave me something to do. So I, I worked in the lab during spring quarter. Then I worked the summer after my first year in medical school full time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had an aptitude for it. I was doing various kinds of experiments, looking at properties of axons and their excitability properties. So then I had to decide, okay, second year in med school, am I going to keep doing this or not? And I said, yeah, I'm going to try. So I applied to the MD-PhD program. And to this day, I am f- very happy to take Stanford's money because they rejected me from their MD-PhD <laughs> program, you know, which would have paid for everything. Yeah. So then I started looking into it. And I said, well, do I still want to pursue a PhD? I mean, what do I want to do? Yeah. And you know, to Stanford's credit back then, I had several motivations for continuing to work in the lab. One, I liked it. Two, if you worked in the lab and were hired as like a research assistant, the cost of my tuition was reduced by 70%. Uh It was an incentive for medical students to do research. So I said, okay, I'm going to keep working in the lab. And then at some point during this, I said, maybe I can still get a PhD. So back then, all I did to get into the neuroscience PhD program at Stanford is I walked in The guy who was running it back then is a guy named Jack McMahon, who was a member of the neurobiology department here for whatever it was, 25, 30 years. Uh He he left a few, whatever it was, five, eight years ago. And I went into Jack's office and I said, here's who I am. I'm a medical student. I'm working with Jeff Kosis and Steve Waxman. Here's what I've done. Here's the courses I've taken. Can I get into the Ph.D. program? And he looked at me and he goes, okay. <laughs> that was it. Easy, easy. it was, so uh, so if, if two months after starting medical school, though, you realized you didn't like medical school yep. and you wanted to go into research. Why did you continue to get an MD? You have an MD. Um, <laughs> I, the, the truth was I wasn't still – remember, this. I hadn't really even begun to do research. I was thinking – I've lived my life, and if you actually look at my career – by trying to keep my options open as much as possible, never uh-huh. making a full commitment to <laughs> <see>. anything <laughs> completely in 100%. So I, 
So I wasn't sure I, was, I had an aptitude for science. I wasn't sure I was going to like it. Uh-huh. And I knew since I was doing med school in my spare time, I said, <laughs> why not continue that train? I had no idea what a scientific career was like. I had no mm-hmm. idea whether I would be able to do it and get a job where I wanted to live. So make a long story short, I, I ended up doing an MD-PhD at Stanford in less than five years. And I got away with doing that because I only did one year of clinical rotations. The standard is two years. Mm-hmm. How and did you re- get out of that? Because I read the directions. <laughs> you know, I'm one of these people, like, when you cook, I actually read the directions on the back of the package. Uh-huh. So I went to the Stanford Medical Student Handbook, and I read the requirements for getting an MD degree from Stanford. And it turns out the requirements are 12 months of clinical rotations, not 24 months that everybody normally does. Mm-hmm. I looked up the requirements for a California medical license. Back then, they've mm-hmm. changed. And the requirements were 12 months of clinical rotations and passing part two and part three of whatever, you know, the boards, the medical uh-huh. school boards. So I said, and my major motivation was I was taking out loans to get through med school. Uh-huh. And I said, well, I'm not going to spend an extra year here where I have to take out another year of loans. I'm gonna, I want to get on with my life. During my clinical rotations, because I, I knew I was only going to do 12 months, I did the four clinical rotations I was considering. I did anesthesiology, neurosurgery, neurology, and psychiatry. And the only one I actually could tolerate was psychiatry because I actually liked talking to crazy people. Uh I was really interested in psychotic disorders. Uh I was really interested in things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And I just had enormous empathy for those patients, and I thought... It was fascinating, mm-hmm. and for some reason, I didn't find it personally depressing, whereas I found interacting with stroke patients, interacting mm-hmm. with Parkinson's patients, multiple sclerosis patients, I think because their symptoms were physically manifest, I just found it depressing. Uh-huh. And I also found neurology too closely aligned with internal medicine, and I just wasn't interested in brain tumors. I wasn't interested in infectious disease. Uh-huh. I wanted windows into how the brain worked, and I thought... The types of, naively, I thought, very naively, the types of mental illnesses that psychiatrists deal with might be windows into how the brain works in the most interesting way possible, even though I realized back then that I didn't want to do clinical research. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do a psychiatry residency also because I still wasn't confident I was smart enough or good enough to make it as a scientist, and I kind of knew that if I kept my scientific training going and I got my clinical training as a psychiatrist, it would keep my options open and open more professional doors. Uh I could always drop out of doing psychiatry and become a full-time scientist, but I also could always drop my science and become a full-time psychiatrist. So I just wanted to keep my options open. And then pragmatically, I kind of recognized this is now in the you know, mid-80s when I was doing all this, I kind of recognized back then if I got more good scientific training as a postdoc Mm -hmm. and I was a clinically trained psychiatrist, it might make me a little bit unusual, a little bit special, that there was a need for people like that in the academic psychiatry community. Why do you say now that that point of view was naive, that seeing patients doesn't hurt you? I mean, a good question. Because maybe I'm still naive. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't help me because, I mean, unfortunately, I think 
our understanding of what's going on in almost any mental illness is incredibly primitive and basically almost non-existent. I passionately believe that almost our only hope, and it's going to be a long, complicated process, but our only hope for understanding pathophysiology of the syndrome we define as schizophrenia, the illness we define as bipolar disorder, and perhaps even something like major depression, although I think that may be a little more tractable, is, is genetics and combining human genetics with better and more sophisticated imaging methodologies. And, be, and it's because schizophrenia primarily is a disorder of thought. Sure, there's a working memory deficit that everybody's trying to figure out and develop medications for, and that's important, and that's a source of morbidity. But the real problem is it's a disorder of thought. It's a looseness of associations. It's a paranoid ideation. How do you study that? How do you, I mean, it's just so, so challenging. And even mood disorders, and, you know, this is going to connect up to why I ended up, you know, doing some work in the addiction field and on reward circuitry. But even mood disorders, they're dysregulations by definition of mood. Yeah. Chronic depression, it's, you're unhappy all the time. Mania, your thoughts are racing. When you're a happy manic, you're ecstatic. The world is your oyster. You know, you're spending money. It's fun, everything. And to understand the neural circuits that mediate those experiences, those moods, those emotional states is in unbelievably com complicated and challenging. But I was always interested in synapses. I was always interested in what I'm still trying to figure out, how neuro, in quotes, neuromodulators like dopamine work. What are they doing in the brain? I was always interested in that. So when I started thinking about a postdoc, I wanted to finally do synaptic neurobiology I wanted to study neuromodulators like dopamine, and I wanted to stay in the Bay Area. So I found Roger Nicole at UCSF, uh -huh. who back then was publishing, you know, important papers on norepinephrine modulating the after-hyperpolarizing potential of action potentials. I thought he was doing really cool stuff. He was in the Bay Area. He had a great reputation as a great scientist. Mm -hmm. So I took a two-year leave of absence from my residency, and I became a full-time postdoc with Roger. Then my last two years of residency, so I figured out that if I got my own salary, the Stanford residency wouldn't have to pay me, and they would probably let me do what I wanted to do. <laughs> so I figured out, I wrote a grant. I got for one year, I got a fellowship from some private foundation, and then another year, this is my last two years of residency, a guy who's now the chairman of psychiatry at Northwestern, John Cernansky, who was then at the VA in Palo Alto, he had control of some VA fellowship uh -huh. that he let me, he gave me to provide my salary. So that allowed me my last two years of residency to see patients one day a week and work with Roger Nickel basically as a full-time postdoc. Uh -huh. And that's when we started working on LTP. Okay, so you just <laughs> said the magical word, right. LTP. Um, uh, so this is a form of synaptic plasticity, which right. uh, you're very well known for your, your work on. Um, so can you just explain sort of in general, sort of basic terms, what LTP is? Okay, so LTP stands for long-term potentiation of excitatory synaptic transmission. And the importance of it 
initially until there's actually just a paper that came out this week in Nature that really helps not quite put the nail in the coffin, but really provides important experimental evidence that phenomena like LTP really are used by the brain for information storage for memories. It's not the only mechanism, but it Uh is an important one. So it's based on the theory first proposed by Donald Hebb. So Hebb was a Canadian psychologist who first proposed the very simplistic idea that one way of encoding a memory might be that if one neuron repetitively participates in the firing, stimulating another neuron through Mm -hmm. synaptic transmission and causing that neuron to fire action potentials, that a nice information storage mechanism is to strengthen that communication. Mm-hmm. So when if neuron A repeatedly participates in the firing of neuron B, maybe that synapse gets stronger and stronger. And that is basically what LTP is. So it is in response to repetitive activity of a synapse, what we call the strength of that synapse becomes stronger, becomes larger. Uh And what we mean by that is when an action potential propagates down and releases neurotransmitter from the presynaptic terminal of that synapse, which we now know how that works, thanks to the brilliance of Tom Sudhoff, (laughs) that neurotransmitter diffuses across the synaptic cleft, activates postsynaptic receptors, in this case glutamate receptors, and that synaptic response, that excitatory postsynaptic potential or excitatory postsynaptic current, if it gets bigger, we say that's an increase in synaptic strength. So based on Hebb's idea, um, which was, I think it was in the 50s, even before Hebb, people were looking for phenomenon which sort of fed this kind of simple-minded notion. Uh I mean, actually, I think Eccles did work on looking for what we now call synaptic plasticity for how activity might modify synaptic transmission. Mm -hmm. Say the word plasticity, that just means that with activity you can make these connections stronger or weaker? Exactly. So plasticity is just a general term we use now saying the properties of the synapse are plastic have changed. They're uh-huh. not immutable. So flexible, and you know, that's why many of us in neuroscience don't feel a computer is an apt analogy for the brain because the hardware of a computer, at least current computers, they are fixed. Uh-huh. I mean, sure, the software can be plastic, but the hardware can't. The hardware of our brain is incredibly plastic. Uh-huh. So then what happened is a guy named Terj Lomo, a Norwegian electrophysiologist, started playing around with different patterns of activation of synapses, looking, basically looking for something like LTP. Uh-huh. And he was clever enough to be doing this in a region of the brain called the hippocampus. So why look in the hippocampus? Because by that point, the famous patient HM had been described. And I can't remember. When was the first description of HM? Um, I actually I don't know. I think it was 55. Yeah, I think it was early days. Like that, yeah. So patient HM okay. was a patient who had had bilateral removal of his temporal lobes because of intractable epilepsy. And what Brenda Milner, a very famous neuropsychologist in Montreal, discovered when she started testing patient HM, who recently died, I think mm-hmm. he died within the last year or two, was that patient HM had profound anterograde amnesia, meaning 
He could remember the name of his first grade school teacher. He could remember his own name. He could remember he was married. He could remember where he grew up. He could remember all sorts of things from his life, but he could no longer encode any new memory. So if you said hello to him, you walked into the room, and you didn't probe too hard, you wouldn't think there was anything wrong with him. He'd be very polite. Hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. Where are you from? But if you left the room for more than about 30 seconds or a minute and you went back in, he had no recollection of ever having seen you. Mm -hmm. And that started the idea that there were specific parts of the brain important for what we call declarative memory, which is the memory that we think about when we talk about memory for facts and events, the name of your school teacher, when your birthday is, that there were structures in the temporal lobe that were absolutely required for the encoding of those memories. And very quickly, people started focusing on the hippocampus. People started doing lesion studies in animals, looking for other patients. So it was known by the time Lomo started looking for something that was akin to what Heb had proposed, the hippocampus was a good place to look Mm -hmm. because it was known, it was a structure that was important for memory. And importantly, which people don't appreciate often, it was a very attractive experimental system in which to look for synaptic plasticity because the anatomy is, relatively speaking, very simple compared to something like the cortex. Uh So we knew there were axons from this brain region, that made synapses on certain cells in the dentate gyrus. We knew those cells made axons called mossy fibers that made synapses. I mean, it was a very well-characterized anatomical structure where it was possible to stimulate axons and record postsynaptic responses, and you knew it was a direct monosynaptic connection. Uh So Lomo had a famous abstract first reporting the finding that in rabbits, I believe, He could provide a high-frequency tetanus, we call it, a high-frequency stimulation to the axons that made synapses on cells that are in this region of the brain called the dentate gyrus. Uh So he would would stimulate them at a low frequency and record the compound postsynaptic response, you know, for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And, you know, the size of the response would be, let's call it one. He'd tetanize. And then the size of that response would increase to two, uh-huh. it would, the amplitude of their postsynaptic response, and it would stay increased for tens of minutes uh-huh. in response to a very short high-frequency stimulation. So then Tim Bliss, who really gets the mo- deserves the most credit for at least j- initially describing what we now call LTP, saw this abstract and said, this is pretty cool. Uh-huh. Let's really study it. So, and I don't know the details, but I think he went to Terj Lomo's lab in Norway, and they did a real in vivo study in rabbits, Mm -hmm. in both anesthetized and I believe unanesthetized rabbits. It's been a while since I've read these papers. It was the first experimental description of what we now call LTP, Uh which is a high-frequency tetanus causing a, in quotes, long-lasting potentiation of synaptic transmission that outlasted the triggering stimulus by many, many tens of minutes and even hours, depending on the preparation. Uh And that's what Bliss is famous for. The Bliss and Lomo 1973 Journal of Physiology papers, the initial description of some of the very basic properties of LTP. Mm -hmm. 
So what did people think LTP was for in the beginning? In the beginning, they thought it had all the properties that made it a very attractive synaptic mechanism for memory storage. And so very quickly, even in the 70s, actually in the 70s and the early 80s, started trying to think of experiments they could do in the hippocampus that would strengthen the connection between this model. Remember, LTP is an experimental model. You know, we are artificially activating synapses with our stimulating electrodes and measuring the artificial response we get out from activating it. You're not doing this in the awake behaving animal, Mm. although people eventually Mm. did that sort of thing. So people started trying to do experiments to make that connection stronger. That is the connection between LTP as a synaptic plasticity phenomenon that is a really attractive cellular synaptic phenomenon that might be useful for the nervous system to store information, to store memories, and actually proving it actually is used by the brain. And that has turned out to be incredibly challenging. Mm -hmm. So the attempts that were made that were probably the best attempts were mostly made by a guy named Bruce McNaughton and his then wife, Carol Barnes. So they had a series of experiments where, uh, you know, think about it. What what are the experiments you might want to do? Well, one experiment they did is they recorded the synaptic potential in in vivo in response to electrical stimulation of an input into the hippocampus, and they just put the animal, and to be honest, I don't even remember, I think this was done in rats, Uh and they let the animal just explore a novel environment. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, chances are the the animal is going to learn a lot by exploring this novel environment, and they showed that this evoked potential started to grow as the animal explored this novel environment. So that's nice. Is that LTP or not? Who knows? But it is a change in synaptic strength that correlated with a novel experience of the animal. But the trouble is, for the next 25, 30 years, it's still correlational. Yeah. It, doesn't, you know, it doesn't provide causality. I think the challenge was people, I think, slowly started to appreciate that the hippocampus and rodents especially was important for encoding things like spatial information, Mm -hmm. but the way the hippocampus encoded this information, it it used what we call a sparse code, Uh meaning there's, you know, there's, on each individual pyramidal cell in the hippocampus, there's 10 to 70,000 synapses, and there's thousands of CA3 pyramidal cells talking to thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of CA1 pyramidal cells, I forget the numbers, and so even if LTP was being used as a memory mechanism, it's very likely it's only at a very small percentage of these synapses on a sparsely distributed population of, of pyramidal cells. So how are you ever going to find whether LTP is really happening? So people slowly gave up on that kind of approach until we started understanding the mechanisms of LTP. Uh, If you think LTP is only happening in a small subset of neurons... In the hippocampus. In the hippocampus, then what accounts for the the rest of memory? How, if that's only some aspects of... I have a lot to say about this, as you might imagine, (laughs) since I have a lot to say about everything. Um, I no longer think of LTP, quote, as a memory mechanism. I think of LTP and then the opposite phenomenon, which, as you know, I'm well known for studying, which is long-term depression, Uh which is a long-term depression of synaptic transmission, are core synaptic phenomena 
used by many excitatory synapses throughout the brain for every possible form of experience-dependent plasticity. I see. And what they do in certain brain regions, that circuit, that brain area, uses these synaptic plasticity phenomena I'm calling LTP or LTD, depends on what those neurons and circuits are actually in the brain to do. Uh So in the hippocampus, the hippocampus we think is important for encoding newly acquired information, yeah, I think the cells use phenomena like LTP and LTD and perhaps 20 other different changes in their excitability and their synaptic structure to encode that new information. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it is, as, as Malino's paper recently showed, it is still possible that the major mechanism by which circuits of neurons encode new information in the hippocampus, well, he didn't do a hippocampal experiment, and I'm jumping around a little bit, but even in the hippocampus, it still may be the major mechanism. And when you say maybe your memory that Rob talked too much during this interview, you know, your memory that you're looking at me through this window at a guy with gray hair and a mustache, and he talked a lot, is encoded in your hippocampus very sparsely, right? None of us have any idea whatsoever about when you remember your name is Erica, right? How many neurons and synapses in your brain do you need to encode that piece of information and then to pull it out of your brain? Yeah. I don't think a single person in the world has any real experimental evidence to tell us whether that's three synapses and five neurons or three million synapses and 100,000 neurons, uh-huh. right? I mean, we, have ap- we actually don't have any idea. So who's to say how many neurons in the hippocampus you need to encode some new piece of information? How many synapses need to be modified to encode that? Now, computational neuroscientists will probably tell me that they can model some of this and make estimates So then is LTP just one mechanism of many that is a way to include new information? That's a really good question. The answer is we don't know, at least I don't know. I think because LTP and its counterpart, LTD, seem to be so ubiquitous, it's hard to find excitatory synapses in the brain that don't have some form of LTP or LTD. I think they're fundamentally important. And notice how carefully I'm saying this. What we've learned now over the years since the initial description of what I would call traditional NMDA receptor-dependent LTP, Mm -hmm. the model being in the hippocampus, you know, we now know that at least synapses throughout the brain have at least the possibility of exhibiting many different forms of synaptic plasticity that still fall under the rubric of LTP because it's an increase or LTD because it's a decrease, but the underlying triggering mechanisms for those might be a little bit different. Now, I don't think there's 75 different forms of LTP and Uh LTD. It's it's sort of like um, one of these restaurants you go to, like Chipotle or something, (laughs) where... You know, there's a, there's a menu, and, you know, you have four choices of meat, you have four choices of toppings, so there's a menu, and you can combine them in different ways, but it's not unlimited. And I personally, based on my own work in the field, think whatever the number is, you know, there's maybe two to five different forms of LTP, uh-huh. and, you know, maybe I'm making this up, just, you know, four to ten different forms of LTD that are used 
by different synapses for various purposes. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other changes in nerve cells and circuits that also contribute, let's say, to memory. Things like long-lasting changes in the excitability of the neuron. Mm -hmm. And when I say this, I'm talking about activity-dependent changes. Mm -hmm. So you have some experience that generates some pattern of activity in a set of neurons, and things like LTP and LTD happen. But it very well may be that those patterns of activity also cause changes in the excitability properties of the neuron, changes in the distribution of ion channels, and all of those combined help that neuron be part of a circuit Mm -hmm. that is going to encode that new information. Having said that, the evidence for mechanisms other than synaptic plasticity phenomena like LTP and LTD is is even weaker. (laughs) So it is still my hunch, just based on how the nervous system works and that neurons are connected into circuits via synapses, there's pretty good evidence now that these phenomenon of LTP and LTD in all their different forms very likely lead to long-lasting structural changes in synaptic mm-hmm. connectivity. So synapses shrink, synapses get bigger. You know, it, it just feels right. And there's more and more correlative and beginning to be causal evidence that changes in synaptic weights, changes, things like LTP and LTD, really modify behavior in the animal. Uh-huh. And, and that's via the use of optogenetics, and that's another whole conversation we can begin <laughs> to talk about, that yeah. with modern methodologies, you can really start making stronger, almost causal connections between changes in synaptic properties and some behavioral readout in an experimental animal. And that's very exciting because that's now the next 50 years of neuroscience yeah. research along with lots of other stuff. So you joined Roger Nichols' lab and you got into some pretty intense, uh, involved in a very intense debate about LTP. I was wondering how, how did you shift your focus? To that? Okay, so what happened? And actually the debate just began when I was a postdoc. Then there was a hiatus and then it started up again. So I was working with Roger and, you know, I owe Roger an enormous debt of gratitude because I didn't know, you know, I didn't even know what LTP was. Mm-hmm. But he was actually a, a guy who's another faculty member here who you might interview someday, Dan Madison, who's mm-hmm. a professor in molecular cellular physiology. He had just, he had done his PhD with Roger, but was sticking around as a postdoc. I had joined the lab and Roger had started getting interested in LTP. And the reason for that is he had, you know, he's a smart guy. He's always been interested in synapses and how they work. He recognized that plasticity of synapses might be important, but he didn't know how to attack it because he knew about LTP, but there was nothing known about mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And then in the early 80s, 83, in fact, and then 84, 85, and this is when I was beginning my postdoc with Roger. Everybody had been trying to do synaptic physiology in vivo, mm-hmm. which is really hard. In a living, an anesthetized, usually, preparation. A rat, a rabbit, a cat. The cat was the favorite experimental animal. And then Japanese scientist, I think it was Yamamoto, realized you could take the brain out of experimental animals like rats and slice different parts of the brain and keep that hunk of brain tissue alive in what I would call as an in vitro slice preparation. Mm-hmm. And the synapses in the cells seem to behave normally for seven hours, eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours. So that was the beginning of slice physiology, taking brain slices. 
And that opened the door to doing much better mechanistic experiments on all sorts of things, on neuromodulation. Imagine trying to study anything in vivo where you can't see what you're doing, you're blindly placing electrodes, and then all of a sudden you can make a hippocampal slice and you can visualize the pyramidal cell layer and put your electrodes under visual control exactly where you want to. You can do intracellular recordings from single cells. So papers came out from Graham Collingridge demonstrating a classic important finding showing that an antagonist of what we call NMDA receptors, a subtype of glutamate receptor, if you bath applied it to a hippocampal slice, would have no effect on basal synaptic transmission, which we now know is mediated by what we call AMPA receptors, another subtype of glutamate receptor. Yet magically, this antagonist of NMDA receptors would completely block LTP. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty wild. Think about this. You have some receptor, some target for this drug that is kind of silent during normal synaptic transmission. You put on the drug, you don't see anything happen, yet very clearly LTP is blocked because Uh you can wash off the drug in a slice preparation and show that you can now get LTP. So that was the proof from Collingridge, very important finding. But it was still a black box. And then the, the big advance was the description of the biophysical properties of NMDA receptors. The discovery by Gary Westbrook and Mark Mayer and Linda Novak and Philippe Asher that NMDA receptors have this very interesting voltage dependence, Mm -hmm. that they don't pass much current when the cell is sort of sitting there quietly at minus 60, minus 70 millivolts. But when you depolarize the cell, the NMDA receptor can start passing current because it expels the magnesium that's sitting in its pore. So, you know, that could explain a lot about some of the properties of LTP that had been elucidated previously that we haven't really discussed, and let's not Mm -hmm. even get into it. But it was a really important finding, just the voltage dependence, and then the discovery that NMDA receptors are highly permeable to calcium. Uh And that was really important because there had been a paper from Gary Lynch, a famous LTPer, who's a really smart kind of crazy guy, because he had presented some evidence before this that some sort of change in calcium in the postsynaptic cell was important for LTP. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, with the description of the biophysical properties of NMDA receptors, things started making sense. You had a possible mechanism. So that's around this time is when Roger started really getting interested, because Roger you know, one of his talents, which I learned from him, is recognizing where the opportunities are for doing crisp, clean experiments. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out the first experiment I did on LTP was I had a nature paper, which it it actually turns out this phenomenon had nothing to do with LTP. (laughs) And to be blunt, we packaged it in the context of LTP, And I actually fought this idea. This was my first nature paper with Roger and Dan Madison, actually. I believe it was my first, was it? And this was putting on a drug called forbolesters. And it turns out forbolesters, at the time, it, it turns out they do lots of other things. But at the time, they were thought to be specific activators of a protein kinase called protein kinase C. And... For a variety of reasons, I was looking for a project in Roger's lab. The project I was working on had kind of fallen apart. And forbolesters are tumor promoters. So you have to wear gloves when you use them. You have to be careful with them. 
But I was a little cavalier. Remember, I was work hard, party hard. You know, whatever. I'm looking for an experiment. I'm dying to get hot data. I know how to do slice physiology now. It's easy. I know. So there was another postdoc who was supposed to be pursuing the actions of four bolesters. And he was scared of working with it. Really nice guy. He's a good friend. Because they were tumor promoters. Uh-huh. So Roger basically said, hey, you want to see what's happening? You know? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll do that. And I started dumping four blisters onto slices. And what I kept, this, is, this, was the, this was when science was more fun for me, to be honest. Because uh-huh. I actually, believe it or not, I was a pretty good experimentalist. And as you guys know, I haven't done an experiment myself in like, you know, 18 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I used to be a pretty good physiologist. And I, I was good because I knew how to make recordings and I knew how to keep my eyes open. So I was looking for whatever four bolesters would do. And I wasn't even sure what they might do. But I was looking at synaptic responses in a hippocampal slice. And I would bath apply the four bolesters. And I kept noticing, I'd put these on and I kept having to reduce the stimulation strength, you know, that I was putting through my stimulating electrode. And I was getting irritated. You know, God damn it, nothing is stable in this. And that lasted about three days. Every time I would put on four blisters, I would have to turn down stimulation strength. So quiz for graduate students, what does that mean? So bells and whistles started going off in my head. Duh, maybe this is enhancing synaptic transmission. (laughs) And that's why I keep having to turn down stimulation strength. Uh So I finally did the right experiment after being an idiot for three or four days. I made sure everything was stable. I put on four blisters. And what was so much fun about these experiments was every time you put a four bolester on a slice, you get a massive potentiation of synaptic transmission. Mm. 100% working. Think about how much fun that is if you're an experimentalist. <laughs> it is a reliable, robust... <laughs> no, this worked. I guarantee you. I guarantee you if you put this on any synapse, you get an enhancement of transmission. Um, so I was naive. A little... Back then... I thought this alone was incredibly exciting. Mm-hmm. I have a manipulation. And then we did lots of physiology experiments to sort of present evidence that this was a presynaptic enhancement, an enhancement of neurotransmitter release, uh-huh. which turned out to be correct. Everybody would agree with that. And I just thought that alone was exciting, and we should send that to nature. But Dan and Roger, which I didn't know, had been talking a lot about LTP. Because it turns out Dan Madison had done his undergraduate research with Gary Lynch. So Dan had been introduced to LTP long before Roger started working on it. Uh So they had been, and they saw this potentiation that I discovered as a way of the lab starting to work on LTP. So make a long story short, we had a publication where the data are correct, but the interpretation, I think, is completely wrong, (laughs) where... And we got it published in Nature, where the report was four bolesters enhance synaptic transmission via a presynaptic mechanism. So there's a connection here to pre versus post. Uh-huh. And this occludes LTP. Because once we put on four bolesters and I really let it max out, I could no longer get LTP. Uh-huh. And, it was, and that was a pretty robust finding, too. So the idea was we were already inducing LTP with a four bolester. And everybody in the field forgets this paper. And for reasons I'll tell you about in a second. And so I think the title of the Nature paper was Potentiation of Synaptic Transmission by Four Bolesters. You know, a brilliant Uh title. Um, (laughs) But the word potentiation was not an accident. Uh 
And then we propose that the forbolester action, whatever it may be, maybe via activation of PKC, was tapping in to the same mechanisms that underlie LTP. Mm -hmm. um, now, it turns out the forbolesters were working completely presynaptically. And as I'm about to tell you, we now, 98% of the people in the field acknowledge that LTP initially is a postsynaptic phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So I left the lab, went home, did my residency for a year, did some research in my spare time down here at Stanford. And then I went back to Roger's lab as a postdoc. And then by that point, a woman named Julie Cower was a postdoc. And Julie is, has been my, what do I call her? My girlfriend, my partner <laughs> for the last 12 years. Uh -huh. Although we w were not hooked up back then, but we were introduced to each other back then. Mm -hmm. She was a new, relatively new postdoc in Roger's lab. So I arrived, and she had been there a few months, and she was beginning to do experiments on LTP. Mm -hmm. So Roger now really had, he wanted to attack LTP. And I arrived in the lab, and I had already been with Roger for two years previously, you know, so I was actually more senior than Julie, you know. I had already been doing it. I had already published like three or four papers with Roger, a nature paper, a science paper, and something else, and uh -huh. blah, blah, blah. And to be honest, I, I wanted to work on LTP. Uh -huh. And so... I convinced Roger and Julie, and at the time, Julie didn't like me that much. <laughs> this is all true. She now loves me. But at the time, she thought I was a little bit aggressive and a little bit pushy, you know. And, but I basically convinced Roger and Julie that what we should do, that Julie and I should team up mm -hmm. and we should attack LTP mechanisms experimentally. And Julie and I then spent the next two years, and it was a blast mm -hmm. because LTP was a really hot topic. So this is now 1986, 87, 88. And there were all these obvious experiments to do that nobody else had done uh -huh. about really probing the initial triggering, what we call the triggering mechanisms, what induces it, what sets off the cascade of events in the cell responsible for LTP and what we call the expression mechanism. That is, what is actually happening at the synapse to cause the long-lasting change. So in two years, we just hit it out of the park. Mm -hmm. We had a science paper where Roger Chen had created these photolabile calcium compounds that a guy, a synaptic biologist, who's still around named Bob Zucker, Robert Zucker, who's at Berkeley, had been playing around with. These were compounds you could load into a cell and then flash a light and they would release calcium. That is, their right. affinity for calcium would go way down. So Zucker had been playing around with these at the crayfish neuromuscular junction. Roger called him up and said, we want to try some LTP experiments. So there were, had been a hypothesis from Gary Lynch and others that calcium was an important trigger for LTP. But the, the obvious experiment is if... If that's true, you should be able to raise calcium directly in the postsynaptic cell and trigger LTP just alone. Uh -huh. And we did that experiment. So we loaded cells with this calcium compounds. They were brutal experiments, actually. They were really hard. We had these big flash lamps because we had to, like, this is old days. This is 86, 87. This was before patch clamp recording, wholesale recording. These were sharp intracellular recordings. Uh -huh. 
which when things are going well are pretty easy to do. When things are not going well, meaning your electrodes just aren't good, it's brutal. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's torture. Mm-hmm. So we had to poke into a cell, let the calcium compounds dribble into the cell for 30 or 40 minutes. So you needed a stable recording. Would get a baseline. This is before voltage clamping. This just a little EPSP and would flash a light and ask, does the EPSP get bigger? And it did. Uh-huh. And that ended up being a science paper showing that direct release of calcium in the postsynaptic cell, Malenka et al. science paper. Okay, so that is support for the calcium part of the hypothesis. So we then had a nature paper. I won't bore you too much with this, where another part of the, sta- the standard model for L2B induction is. All you need is activation of the NMDA receptor and depolarization of the cell. Mm -hmm. So if that's true, you should be able to just apply NMDA to the cell during depolarization and get LTP. Mm -hmm. And that's a little more complicated story. So, But we did those experiments with a technique called iontophoresis, where you sort of load an electrode with NMDA and you pass current to push the NMDA out. And those were a lot of fun to do. Yeah. And that's a whole different long story. But it turns out when, thing, when you iontophorese NMDA and you're making, a, a rec- let's say, an extracellular field potential recording, you should go back and look at this paper. This is a cower at all nature paper because Julie and I had made an agreement. This was before there was such a thing as co-first authorship. We had made an agreement that we were going to be joined at the hip scientifically. Uh-huh. And we, we weren't going to argue about who collected more data. We were just going to work as a team. And we'd, we flipped a coin about the first paper. And then we just went back and forth on first authorship. Wow. And this was before, in today's world, we would have been co-first authors on every one of our four papers uh-huh. on LTP. So it turns out if you antifreeze NMDA into a CA1 region of hippocampal slice, you get mongo potentiation it's in it's you just see the epsp grow and grow and grow Uh three times four times this is back in the day when we had these things called oscilloscopes and i mean i vividly remember these experiments i would have to turn down the gain on the oscilloscope because it would the epsp would get so mongo i mean sometimes it would be five or six times as big Uh and to this day none of us have any understanding of why the potentiation was so enormous. And the other thing that was really interesting about it was it was always transient. It would go up and stay up, and then it would just decay back to baseline over 20, 30, 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. And that led to me spending three years looking for why that potentiation didn't stay up forever the way LTP. And that's a different story. So let me move on. So the bottom line is, So we had a nature and science paper really supporting and nailing down the model that other people had proposed but hadn't provided the compelling evidence that's required to really support a hypothesis about the triggering of LTP. It requires NMDA receptors. It requires a postsynaptic rise in calcium. The big question then is we know LTP is triggered by activation of postsynaptic NMDA receptors Mm -hmm. and a rise in postsynaptic calcium within dendritic spines. So then the question is, what would make the EPSP bigger for a long-lasting time? So Uh one possibility is you have the same neurotransmitter release, but the receptors have been modified Mm -hmm. biophysically, so they pass more current, some sort of change in their conductance. 
And back then we weren't thinking about this, but we're going to lead up. The other possibility is there's just more receptors at the synapse. Uh-huh. So for a given amount of neurotransmitter, you have more receptors to respond. So in both but, of those instances, though, you would get more neurotransmitter getting into the postsynaptic cell. No, 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 Erica. Think. Slow down. <laughs> the argument is it's the same neurotrans- amount of neurotransmitter release at a population of synapses. Right. But there's more either the receptors in response to one quantum of neurotransmitter. Let's uh-huh. just say that. There's either more receptors So if there's more receptors, more of them are going to be activated. They're going to generate more current in a larger EPSP. That's basic. Uh Or the conductance, the amount of current through each individual receptor, it gets larger. Mm -hmm. Those are pure postsynaptic changes, postsynaptic receptors being modified. Can I interject maybe an analogy to help? listeners understand so yep. it's like postsynapse have doors maybe and, and tr- neurotransmitters the key to the door right yep. and so we're either increasing the number of doors or making those doors bigger and, mm-hmm. and the current is passing through those doors and we just want yeah. to get more current to get a bigger EPSP. That's a good analogy so or the other possibility this is not intuitively obvious and this now gets into how science actually works the other possibility which is much more complicated is that there's a long-lasting enhancement of transmitter release, Mm -hmm. either what we call the probability of transmitter release, because as you know as neurobiology students, when an action potential invades a terminal, whether transmitter is released or not is a probabilistic event. Mm -hmm. So it's... And the key to all this is that all these synapses, we're studying populations of synapses, 10, 20, 30 synapses. So the probability of release, let's say if it's 0.5 and there are 20 synapses, every time you activate those synapses, 10 of those presynaptic terminals are going to release neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. So, So one simple way of enhancing synaptic strength at this population is you make that probability of release rather than 0.5, you make it 0.8. Mm-hmm. So now, out of those 20, whatever that is, 16 of them are going to release. So your EPSP is going to be larger. Uh-huh. So phenomenologically, when I'm making my measurement of an EPSP, it still grows. Uh-huh. But the, the mechanism causing that is a change in the keys, is a change in the neurotransmitter release, nothing to do with the change in the receptors. Now, if you think about when I picture a synapse, remember I just said that the triggering of LTP happens postsynaptically. Mm-hmm. If the change that actually causes the, cha- the enhancement of transmission is happening presynaptically, there has to be what we call a retrograde communication, right. a postsynaptic something that is feeding back onto the presynaptic terminal and saying, release more neurotransmitter. Uh-huh. Now, that is not an intuitively obvious idea, but that became a very popular idea because the founder of LTP, or the guy who gets the credit, deservedly so, Tim Bliss, during this time was publishing a series of papers using, in my view, very, very indirect measures in vivo to measure neurotransmitter release in vivo before and after LTP. Uh And he was reporting that he saw more neurotransmitter released following LTP. But to me and Roger and Julie, it just didn't make sense. Why would the synapse go to all that trouble to trigger it postsynaptically, then have what we call a retrograde messenger and enhanced neurotransmitter release? And furthermore, we were doing studies inducing LTP, and we were looking at phenomena that are short-lasting forms of 
presynaptic plasticity, things like for Ada, pair pulse facilitation and things like that, which these presynaptic phenomena of very short-lasting plasticity, forms of plasticity that last 100 milliseconds, Mm -hmm. that we know are presynaptic, in our hands, they didn't change after we induced LTP. You know, we kept thinking if transmitter release is changing, if you do a pharmacological manipulation that changes transmitter release, these presynaptic phenomena of plasticity always change. And it wasn't happening. So we were confused. Uh And we just said it didn't make sense. So there was a famous guy, Tim Bliss, who was reporting it was presynaptic. So Julie and I did a set of experiments, which we thought at the time would allow us to make a strong conclusion. So a very famous neuroscience journal now is Neuron. Uh But this is in 1988, I believe. And the first issue of Neuron was published in 1988. So this is early days. So we did a series of experiments where we made the following hypothesis. It turns out that the the synaptic response has two different components, Uh one generated by AMPA receptors, one generated by NMDA receptors. Any presynaptic change in transmitter release, except under very unusual circumstances, has to affect both of those components equally. Uh Because if you enhance neurotransmitter release, you have more glutamate being released at a population of synapses. The AMPA component of transmission goes up. The NMDA component of transmission goes up. It's unequivocal. Mm -hmm. So we reasoned. If that's what we saw during LTP, both components going up, we actually can't conclude whether LTP was presynaptic or postsynaptic. It could be presynaptic. It also could still be postsynaptic because it could be a modulation of both AMPA receptors and NMDA receptors postsynaptically. But we reasoned if we only saw the AMPA component of transmission go up and the NMDA component didn't change, Mm -hmm. that was impossible to explain only by a presynaptic enhancement of transmitter release. Impossible. There was Mm -hmm. no mechanism other than a postsynaptic change. So we did those experiments. We got that result that during LTP, it's a famous paper in the LTP literature, showing that the AMPA component increased during LTP, the NMDA component did not, under the circumstances back then we were using for those experiments. I think now I know it's much more complicated. And then we decided, and we kind of regret this, although in some ways we don't, we decided to get very aggressive. Uh-huh. And so first it was, I decided, let's send it to Neuron. It's a new journal. We weren't sure Nature Science might, you know, this was getting a little technical. Maybe it wouldn't get into Nature Science. Neuron was this new journal that was being run out of UCSF by editors at UCSF. We sent it to Neuron and we published a paper. I think it was the third or fourth issue of Neuron. When I say we got aggressive, the title of the paper basically said a postsynaptic change mediates LTP, uh-huh. right in the title. Right. This is a postsynaptic phenomenon. Uh-huh. Okay, so then what, ha- what happened? So now we have the founder of the LTP field, Tim Bliss, saying it was presynaptic. We have these new upstarts, uh-huh. the Nickel Lab, with Malenka and Julie Kaur. So Julie and I, in two years, on LTP, published two nature papers, a science paper, and a neuron paper wow. in two years. Um, it was <laughs> the good old days. So... Then we published, finally, as the fourth paper. And remember, we just published two nature papers and a science paper. This is a hot topic. Mm-hmm. I vividly remember, and I'm a postdoc. You know, I'm not a big shot or anything. I vividly remember Julie and I going to one year at the neuroscience meeting 
and we had back-to-back abstracts in an LTP session, and we were giving these 10-minute talks, and this is, it was so much fun. I mean, I was a nervous wreck. The room was packed. There were people sitting in the aisles. The room was probably made for 150 people. I'm making this up, maybe 200. And there were like 300 people jammed into this auditorium to listen to our talks and our findings Uh because this was hot. This was exciting. So in the fourth paper, we published this aggressive paper saying LTP is postsynaptic. Tim Bliss, the founder of LTP, was arguing it was presynaptic. So then other people started getting involved in this controversy. Now it was a controversy. You have the Nickel Lab, who had a great reputation, saying it's it's postsynaptically expressed. Timbalist saying it's presynaptic. So then famous neuroscientists started getting in the argument. Dick Chen, who, as you know, used to be here Mm -hmm. with Robert Malineau, who's a famous LTP guy himself. Eric Kandel got involved. And Chuck Stevens, who back then was a very famous neuroscientist. Uh And I went off to start my own lab for a little while, and I started working on this other phenomenon, LTD. And Roger was sort of doing his own thing, and we were sort of separated for a few years. This is basically in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. So we had published our papers basically in 89, the final paper, and then these papers started coming out from Dick Chen, from Eric Kandel, from Chuck Stevens, presenting electrophysiological results that they interpreted as stating LTP was presynaptic. Um, so they all jumped uh, onto Tim Bliss's Yes, team. they all uh, did. And, I, I, you know, we, if, it's probably not worthwhile getting into the technical details. Some of these experiments were good experiments and clever. Uh-huh. So you guys don't know Roger Nickel, but Roger, and I say this with enormous respect and affection, is a passionate, intense scientist who cares deeply about what he studies and he is the most competitive human being in the world. Uh-huh. He cannot stand <laughs> being wrong about anything. And he will do every experiment he can possibly think of to get the right answer. And if he thinks he's right, mm-hmm. he will do every experiment, including every experiment anybody else has ever done, uh-huh. to see what result he gets and he, if he thinks he's right, he will not give up the battle. Mm-hmm. So then what happened is I established my reputation independently. And so this controversy was going on. It was getting a lot of attention, not only because it was back then, now it's in the early 90s, a very popular topic. People were thinking this is a memory mechanism. We have to understand how it works. Maybe uh-huh. if we understand how it works, we'll understand how memory works and it will be important clues. People were starting to do experiments showing that anything you did to block LTP in the hippocampus screwed up hippocampal-dependent learning and memory. Mm-hmm. I was doing my own stuff on LTD just for survival and trying to carve out my independent reputation. And I was struggling, and independently, Roger was struggling with what's going on here? How can we explain their results? Th- that is the Candell results, the Chuck St- mostly the Chuck Stevens results, the results from Malino and Dick Chen that really argued LTP was presynaptic. Mm-hmm. So and at this w- point, were there any other labs that were on the postsynaptic side, or was um, basically it was basically me and Roger and Gary Lynch, who uh-huh. was slowly he had published very similar findings to this. Julie Cower and Malenka Nickel paper about 
only the AMPA component of transmission changes in the NMDA and had reached the exact, they published a science paper, uh -huh. him and a guy named Dominique Mueller. So Gary Lynch had actually, to give credit where credit is due, Gary Lynch in the 80s with Michel Baudry had been publishing papers that supported a postsynaptic expression mechanism. Oh, Their idea was that the actin cytoskeleton was modulated during LTP, allowing more receptors to get into the synapse. The reason that didn't catch on is their experimental evidence in support of it, a lot of people in the field found a little bit weak. And then the sociology of science was Gary was really talented and creative, but he was not Eric Kandel and Chuck Stevens right. and Dick Chen. Mm -hmm. He was not a member of the National Academy of Sciences. Kandel and Stevens were very, very famous neuroscientists right. because of other work they had done. So when they started publishing a paper or two saying LTP was presynaptic, it got a lot of attention. So remember what I said before, and this is very important, if LTP is presynaptic, there has to be a retrograde messenger right. from post back to pre. And this is when papers started coming out, one from Dan Madison's lab, one from Eric Kandel's lab, one from Chuck Stevens' lab, reporting that maybe the retrograde messenger was a gaseous molecule called nitric oxide. Oh, I see. So there were a series of nature and science papers saying if you screwed up nitric oxide synthesis or production, you could block LTP, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. So the story was really gathering momentum. You had electrophysiological evidence that was presynaptic. You had the magic messenger molecule. And this was driving Roger crazy because he really kind of didn't believe it. Uh-huh. I wasn't directly involved, but I was following this. And to be honest, I couldn't in my own lab replicate some of the findings on nitric oxide. Uh -huh. I just couldn't, you know, I had good graduate students. We did things as carefully as we could, and we just couldn't generate the evidence these other labs were generating that nitric oxide and synthase inhibitors would block LTP. So, you know, we were struggling what's going on. So this is where... I got the idea for studying silent synapses, and I teamed up with Roger again after being independent for five or six years. Uh -huh. So I was struggling with all this, and then there was a set of data from these groups that really could almost easily be explained by a presynaptic change. Then a guy named Dimitri Coleman, who had worked with Roger, published a paper from his own lab, and there's a reason he doesn't get that much credit anymore, which I'll explain, where he did some very clever experiments that were very indirect. Mm -hmm. And he proposed the idea in his initial neuron paper, hey, maybe there's different populations of synapses. Maybe there are synapses that have both AMPA and NMDA receptors, which we all thought of, mm -hmm. but maybe there's a population of synapses that have NMDA receptors and don't have AMPA receptors. And we're going to call those silent synapses because... When the cell is just sitting there and transmitter is released, NMDA receptors don't pass current at hyperpolarized potentials. There's a key, but there's no door. There's no doors to respond. So it's functionally silent. You don't see it in your recording. And that maybe during LTP, those silent synapses wake up by amper receptors appearing at mm -hmm. those synapses. Really good idea. Other people had thought about this. Dimitri presented indirect evidence in support of that idea. So why doesn't he get much credit? I get a lot of credit for silent synapses, as does Malino, who had been a presynaptic guy. The reason is 
And this is part of the sociology of science, which I think is fair. Mm -hmm. Dimitri doesn't think it is, but I think it's fair. <laughs> is Dimitri then spent the next three years presenting prominent papers in neuron writing reviews in places like TINS, Trends in Neuroscience, saying that the silent synapses he presented evidence for had nothing to do with synapses that didn't have AMPA receptors and had NMDA receptors, but had to do with what we call spillover of glutamate when what, from one set of synapses to another. He, he came up with a completely presynaptic explanation I for see. it, and he pushed it really hard uh -huh. in his papers intellectually. He pushed it hard. He had a series of papers supporting this. So what happened is, this is the honest to God true story. I don't know, you know, Malino would claim he came up with the idea himself. I give, I read Dimitri's paper. It was in Neuron. I think it was 94. And within 20 minutes, bells and whistles started going off uh -huh. in my head. Really, it was that fast. It was like, oh my God, this could explain everybody's results in theory. This would be a postsynaptic mechanism that could explain these, some of the findings, not all of the findings. Uh -huh. This is important. Some of the findings from Chuck Stevens, from Robert Malino and Dick Chen, I got to pursue this in a vigorous way. Uh -huh. And I had a talented postdoc named John Isaac who had just arrived in the lab. We started thinking of experiments. I had tenure by then. I had established my own rep. And I love doing science with Roger. When you're part of his team, it is so much fun. It's like a happy marriage, mm -hmm. you know. So I couldn't resist. And by that point, Roger had been elected to the National Academy of Sciences, which was really important to him. So I had ideas about silent synapses. I knew some experiments I wanted to do. So I approached Roger. And I said, Roger, you know, we haven't worked together for five or six years now. I have tenure. You're in the National Academy. Because for those five years, basically, Roger would barely talk to me. He was friendly to me and nice to me. He, but he wouldn't let me talk to the people in his lab, basically. I mean, because you were a competition? He thought he was – Roger is very competitive. He just didn't want to ever have any awkwardness uh -huh. that I might be doing an experiment that he's doing, he might do. Which I, don't, I don't support that kind of view. make a long story short, I went to Roger, and I said, Roger, I've got to tell you this idea. But if I tell you these ideas, you can't start working on it. If we are going to work on it, we've got to do it together. And I'm telling you, you're going to love this. Uh -huh. I, you know, I knew the guy really well. So I laid out the silent synapse ideas, and I laid out how this could explain everything. And Roger had been thinking along the same lines. He's pretty smart. Mm -hmm. And I said, let's team up. Let's attack this together. And so... For the next five years, this is from like 94 to 99, we basically were joined at the hip. Uh -huh. And in those five years, I think we published something like 45 papers together. Uh -huh. So he had a lab of incredibly talented postdocs, Massimo Sconziani, who you may know, who's mm -hmm. a used investigator at UCSD, Pierre-Marie Leto, Christian Lucher. I had John Isaac. I had this guy, Greg Helmstad. We had a really good team. And between the two labs, we had like whatever number. We had 13 or 14 slice electrophysiology rigs, and we attacked LTP with a vigor. Uh -huh. We did every experiment we could think of to test this pre versus postsynaptic hypothesis roger led the charge and we and roger and i 
basically did what me and Julie did. We said, if we're going to work together, it's going to be a hundred percent marriage. We're never going to discuss author. I mean, it's always going to be, we're always both going to be on each other's papers Mm -hmm. and whose corresponding author is only going to be based on whether the postdoc is sitting physically in Roger's lab or sitting physically in my lab. But we had weekly joint lab meetings, and we ran the la- our two labs as one giant lab mm-hmm. with complete open communication. And it was a blast. And we had incredibly talented people. So we, we just attacked it, with an in- I would say, with an intellectual intensity and vigor that was fun. And we published first a series of electrophysiological findings of all sorts, and you know, one was published in Science, many were published in Neuron, where we just said every single assay electrophysiologically we could possibly think of, including a better assay of silent synapses, worked out and could only be explained by postsynaptic changes mediating LTP. Mm-hmm. And then I will take credit 100%. I realized that if this idea that amper receptors move are appearing at silent synapses during LTP had a lot of implications, not only for LTP, but also for LTD. Uh-huh. Duh. Yeah. Because you could have a very simple mechanism. You could have a mechanism where amper receptors are driven into the synapse during LTP to increase synaptic strength, and the opposite could be happening during LTD. You could be removing amper receptors via endocytotic mechanisms. So I was... Not that I was smart enough to realize, you know, to get at that question, the trafficking question, electrophysiological assays won't tell you that. Mm -hmm. They're indirect about cell biological events. You can do clever experiments to say something is post versus pre, and you can do indirect experiments to support the idea that LTP and, and LTD involve trafficking of receptors. And this is one of my first collaborations with Tom Sudhoff. But I, I was smart enough, I said to Roger, you know, well, I actually just did this on my own. And I, to be honest, Roger joined in because we had this marriage. I said, we have to start becoming cell biologists. We have to learn how to look directly at proteins trafficking and out of the synapse. Uh-huh. And so I was very fortunate that I was friendly, good friends with a great cell biologist at UCSF, Mark Von Zastro who happened to be a psychiatrist like me, happened to be in the psychiatry department, had done a postdoc with Brian Kabilka here, and he was looking at the trafficking of G-protein-coupled receptors. He, and he was looking at doing cell biology and beta-adrenergic receptors. So I went downstairs to him, and I said, hey, will you teach me how to do your assays, but I want to do them on glutamate receptors, and I want to do them on AMPA receptors. Will you teach me, let me work with you and teach me how to do that? Mm-hmm. So I hired a postdoc. He actually, he had a Russian guy who he couldn't afford anymore, and I started paying this guy's salary. And, and so I set up a collaboration, a three-way collaboration with me, Mark Vanzastro, and Roger, and I said, let's start looking at glutamate receptor trafficking in cultured neurons, and first just do proof-of-principle experiments Mm -hmm. for this. We were the very first ones. This was before there were good antibodies for endogenous receptors. So we have papers that I personally think we don't get enough credit for, where we epitope-tagged recombinant amperoceptor subunits. We expressed them in cultured neurons so we could do trafficking work. And we published the first few papers 
that we couldn't get in, in like PNAS and J neuroscience for the first time showing that if you manipulate activity in cultured neurons, you can modulate the trafficking of recombinant receptors into and out of the synapse and into mm -hmm. and out of the plasma membrane. So that was proof of principle. Right. And believe it or not, that might sound trite, but at the time, this is now the late 90s, nobody had ever shown, never mind glutamate receptors, nobody had ever shown that ligand-gated ion channels could traffic the way G-protein-coupled receptors were everybody knew could and people were studying to great. So then we realized, okay, this is really cool, but we need to figure out how to look at endogenous receptors. And then that led to work I did on showing that LTD involved endocytosis of AMPA receptors. So we had this kind of two-pronged attack. We had electrophysiological assays and pharmacologic, uh -huh. and then other people started getting involved in a big way. So Malineau, who was originally pushing the idea that LTP was presynaptic, published a silent synapse paper, and he, he became a postsynaptic guy and started doing very clever experiments using recombinant proteins to look at trafficking. And then people like Morgan Sheng and Rick Eugener, who are famous synaptic neurobiologists, started getting involved. And then so over the course from like 95 to 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, over that decade, all of a sudden, the body of evidence started becoming overwhelming mm -hmm. that LTP and LTD involved postsynaptic changes in the trafficking of AMP receptors. And it was just a flood yeah. of findings and papers that everybody eventually had to accept with one or two holdouts uh -huh. in the fields. And so it became so compelling. And then the sociology of science is, I call it truth by consensus. It's a body of so-called experts in that particular field giving their stamp of approval, saying, you know, basically, as a community, we accept these data and we accept this hypothesis basically as facts. Uh -huh. And then they become facts. Right. They, they go into textbooks and, you know, that's how science progresses until somebody figures out that maybe that fact is wrong. Right. <laughs> and they do some new experiment or brilliant experiment that makes you reevaluate that fact. Do you think debates like that still exist? I mean, that was such a motivating thing. It seems like everybody benefited. So when Roger and I were immersed in this debate, it was exhilarating, but it was stressful. Right. Because we're battling very smart people. Right. Chuck Stevens and Eric Kendall and Dick Chen are extremely smart and extremely accomplished neuroscientists. And, I mean, I could tell you stories. I once had a debate with Chuck Stevens, because Roger didn't want to do it, in front of 500 people at the Society for Neuroscience. Wow. It was a neuroscience social this, I don't know what year this was. I don't know if this is 97, 98, 96, somewhere around there, where it was literally a debate about pre versus post mechanisms in LTP. And there were literally five or 600 people in the audience. Mm -hmm. And I'm being obnoxious, but I crushed him. <laughs> because I just, you know, he had one piece of evidence that he was passionate about. Right. And what people don't appreciate about the, the intense debates, and, I'll, and then I'll finally shut up is the debates were about data. Right. It was not about the conclusions from the data. It was actually about 
Chuck had one set of data uh-huh. that he passionately believed in, which if these data were correct, he was absolutely correct. The only way to explain these data were, was a presynaptic mechanism. Everybody thinks we were arguing about interpretation. What we were arguing about, we had done, me being me and Roger and several postdocs, we had done the same experiments, and we just got a different result. Mm-hmm. And had we be- done your experiments? Well, they were the exact same experiments. We I got see. different results. So the argument was about who knew how to do the experiment better, uh-huh. and the argument was really about when you get right down to it, who is a more careful experimentalist and whose postdoc is a better experimentalist and who was producing the correct results. Mm -hmm. And we believed we were and Chuck believed he was. Mm -hmm. And so there was no solution to that. It was about the data. But then what happened, and Chuck Stevens to this day still thinks everybody is wrong. He still thinks LTP is entirely presynaptic. And I actually think it's much more complicated than what I'm presenting to you. But what happened is not only did we disagree about the data, Roger and I and Mark Van Zastro and then other people in the field just had this overwhelming, not this one experiment, you know, 20 different types of experiments, all of which were internally consistent and all of which said amperoceptor trafficking was happening during LTP and LTD. Right. And so Chuck lost the battle. Uh-huh. So it was stressful but exhilarating. It kept LTP in the limelight. Mm-hmm. And I think in retrospect, I can say what was good about it is it forced people to think very deeply about how synapses work. Mm-hmm. And it is the truth that as a consequence, we learned an enormous amount about basic synaptic properties and basic synaptic transmission Mm -hmm. because people who cared about this it really forced you to think very deeply Mm -hmm. about what you were doing and the experiments you were doing and how to explain them and whether you were doing it the right way and how else could i test this hypothesis so you know in retrospect it, it was a blast and you know right now i can think of i mean there's always debates mm-hmm. about you know what ner- you know the things you guys work on what's going on but i will say this was unusual because of the notoriety the fame mm-hmm. of the neuroscientist involved and because everybody in neuroscience wants to understand how learning and memory works right, right? i mean that's just one of the fundamental questions and as you guys know it's become a less popular topic, that is molecular mechanisms of LTP and how it really works. And as you guys know, I think we still don't understand very much about it, Mm -hmm. but it's not as popular for understandable reasons. You know, science changes, what people are interested in change. I think it's going to make a comeback, though. Yeah. You (laughs) You got that secret piece of data? No, not secret, but I just think there are more and more papers getting published in high-profile journals showing that synaptic plasticity changes, not only in the hippocampus, but in the amygdala, in the nucleus accumbens, really are important for behavioral plasticity. Right. And so I'm anticipating that means people are going to start realizing, and you know, we have to understand molecular mechanisms if we want to really get in there and manipulate how these circuits and synapses are being modified during behavior, if we want to use this information therapeutically to help people. Uh Our actual understanding of molecular mechanisms is actually rudimentary. Right. So, so that's my hope. So thank you so much for speaking with us. Um, it's my pleasure. I hope it was a little bit entertaining and not too boring for you guys. <laughs> it was great. Thank All you right. so much. Yep, thank you. All Bye-bye. Right.
And thank you all for listening. Come have a drink with us next week when our guest will be Daniel Hodds, a neuroeconomist working in Sam McClure's lab here at Stanford. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. This episode was produced by A.D. Yee, Julia Turan, Jordan Sorokin, Nick Weiler, Forrest Coleman, and myself. For more information about Brains and Bourbon and to listen to all of our previous episodes as well as our podcast Neurotalk and to read articles on everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience, visit our website at www.neuritewest.org spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West dot O-R-G.